1492, Christopher Columbus took three small ships filled with, let's say, undesirables, and headed west and changed the world forever. I think we might be right to conclude that Columbus's voyage to the Americas might be one of, if not the most consequential events in world history. But in his mind, this voyage portended the end of the world. Come with me on another fantastic voyage across the seas in this week's Footnoting History. What's up, Footnoters? It's Josh with some more funky religious stories for your ears. We know the story of Christopher Columbus quite well, but what we don't know as well are Columbus's religious beliefs. After all, that's not the sort of thing we're going to find out in our 10th grade history class. Christopher Columbus was a crusader, and I mean this entirely in the medieval sense. At the core of his motivations was the holy city of Jerusalem, long held by Muslims, at his time the Ottomans, and for several centuries by this point, the ultimate prize of Latin Christendom, which began efforts to retake it, and did briefly, at the end of the 11th century. To say that the Crusades of the 11th through 15th centuries went well would not be faithful to the historical record, to put it quite mildly. After the surprising success of the First Crusade and the capture of Jerusalem in 1099, the remaining crusading efforts rendered failure after failure. That failure culminated in 1291 with the fall of Acre, the last crusader city in the Levant, and crusading changed. In 1453, after the Ottoman Turks captured and occupied Constantinople, the long-standing capital of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire and the center of the Greek Church, crusading took another turn towards the recapture of that city instead of a focus on Jerusalem itself. However, despite the changes the crusading movement faced over these centuries, one perhaps of many constants that ran through the conceiving, preaching, and execution of these armed pilgrimages remained the same. They were apocalyptic events. I mean this in two ways. First, the military actions of the crusade are scenes of an apocalypse. Though certainly exaggerated in places, the chronicles of the crusades, especially of the first crusade, are filled with images of violence and gore. At the siege of Jerusalem, at least according to the chronicler Raymond de Aiguillet, the streets of the holy city were littered with the heads and limbs of the dead, and blood ran so high that it came up to the knees of men on horseback. The Crusades represented a critical moment in salvation history, a clear sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ and, indeed, the end of the world. For Christianity, History is the unfolding of God's plan from creation until its end, and during the Middle Ages especially, for many, the Crusades were a symbol of that impending end of everything. So let's back up just a second, before we really dive in and do some, I'm so sorry, discovering, let me map out precisely what we're going to discuss and get a few terms on the table. We'll just get ourselves nice and comfortable. Most of our pop culture iconography around the apocalypse centers on that last book of the Christian Bible. 
revelation, or as it was first rendered in the Greek, apocalypsis, taken here to mean unveiling or revealing. What was unveiled to the book's author, John of Patmos, were the scenes of the last days of the earth, a time of great trouble, earthquakes, violence, meteors, rivers of blood, and other horrors. All of these great calamities, of course, preceded the arrival of Jesus back to earth and the establishment of his 1,000-year reign before the unbinding of Satan and the final destruction of the world. Just some absolutely metal stuff here, y'all. I think, however, it's more helpful to think of the Christian apocalypse as more of an ecosystem of texts rather than just relying solely on the one at the end of the New Testament. Indeed, in order to understand the complexities of the Christian apocalypse, one must do as those in late antiquity and the medieval worlds did, read other books of the Bible and look for clues. After all, there were clues to be found. Though Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, told his disciples that nobody but God the Father knew precisely when the end would come, according to Luke the Evangelist, Jesus proclaimed that there would be signs and a great tribulation. Moreover, the prophecies of the prophet Daniel of the Jewish Bible would play a key role in the unveiling of the end. And as such, medieval theologians read not just Revelation to understand the signs for which to be on the lookout, but this whole body of Jewish and Christian scripture in order to complicate the end. Of course, if you're thinking, didn't Jesus say that nobody knows except for God the Father? I mean, didn't we cover that in another episode? I understand where you're coming from. But that hasn't stopped men over the course of the last two millennium from trying to predict it anyway. I don't want us to get bogged down in the apocalypticism of early Christianity for the sake of our episode, but let's summarize it by saying that it was ever-present. Certainly Paul writes with an apocalyptic fervor and an expectation of the end arriving soon, and many of the other early Christian fathers followed the same lead. Notably, perhaps the most important and influential of the early church fathers, Eusebius and Augustine of Hippo were staunchly opposed to the prediction of the end, but they did leave an interpretive framework for salvation history that lent itself to the search for signs of this impending doom. Key to the understanding of history lies in the book of Daniel, specifically the story when Daniel interprets the dream of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's dream involved a statue made out of several materials, a head of gold, a chest and arms made from silver, a torso and thighs made of bronze, and legs of iron, and the feet were made of clay. You might remember this from the Prester John episode, but I wanted to cover it again just in case you hadn't listened yet. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, that this statue represented the various ages of the earth, and that each segment stood for a great empire that would rise and fall, before, finally, God brought the last empire to dust 
and establish his own kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire was represented by the gold head, and his successors would be revealed in time. For the Christian Church Fathers, this provided that framework for understanding the various ages of the world that would transpire before the arrival of Christ. And it was this framework that allowed this air of apocalypticism to continue, despite the big names like Eusebius and Augustine decrying such thinking. And where the early church fathers went, so did medieval theologians. In general, the apocalyptic imaginations of these end-time enthusiasts did not stray far from their forebearers. They did, however, develop a few innovations that took root in medieval theology and prophecy over the course of several centuries. Perhaps the most important of these innovations was the concept of the Last World Emperor, a Christian monarch that would lead the forces of Christ against the forces of evil in one last battle, Armageddon, that would bring a lasting peace to the world before the end of time. The story of the last world emperor comes from a Byzantine author writing in the name of the 4th century martyr Methodius. This text, however, was not produced until the mid-7th century, and as a result has become known in scholarship as Pseudo-Methodius. One of the many important contexts of the Pseudo-Methodius text is that its production aligned in timing with the rise of Islam. Given the rapidity of the Arab conquests at the end of the 7th century, it is no wonder that this text gained so much traction. That spread of Islamic armies certainly seemed to resonate as a world-ending event for those in the region and especially those living within the Byzantine Empire. If you're familiar with Revelation, that last book of the New Testament, you might remember towards the end of John's vision that Satan is released from his prison and gathers an army from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, in order to fight a final battle against the forces of Jesus Christ. This is Armageddon itself, and it's not the Michael Bay-led Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck vehicle of the early 2000s. Here's where things go off the path a little bit, and I promise that this is all coming back to Columbus and his ilk. Pseudo-Methodius, though he is not the first to do so, combines the story of the last world emperor with a legend about the famous Hellenistic empire builder Alexander the Great. The story goes that as Alexander was conquering the lands of West and Central Asia, he received a command from God. Yes, the God of the Bible. So this is some serious retconning here. To drive his enemies into the north, into a space behind two mountains. God himself moved these mountains closer together, and Alexander constructed large bronze gates to hold them in. In all, Alexander bound 22 nations behind these great northern gates, which would hold until the end of time. These were the armies that the last world emperor would do battle with at Armageddon. He would win, he would retake Jerusalem, Antichrist would appear, and ultimately the last world emperor would hand his crown over to God to secure a final victory over the son of perdition. Christopher Columbus knew these stories. 
While he did not quote Pseudo-Methodius directly, the story of the last world emperor permeated his thinking. Columbus was a man who, despite what we think of him, was well-versed in late medieval theology and prophecy. And nowhere is this clearer than in his Book of Prophecies, a collection of prophetic texts, biblical and extra-biblical, that the Admiral collected as proof of the correctness of his apocalyptic worldview. Scholars have done quite a bit of work on Columbus's Book of Prophecies and this apocalyptic worldview. We know, for example, that Columbus commissioned the manuscript sometime between 1500 and 1503, toward the end of his career and during his fourth voyage. While Columbus gave the instructions for compiling these texts into the Book of Prophecies, Gaspar Goriccio, a Carthusian monk, actually put the volume together. In a letter Columbus sent to Goriccio around 1501, Columbus explained that he had been collecting prophetic texts for a number of years, but no longer had the time to pursue the project. He asked Goriccio to finish the job. The book itself is a number of proof texts. It contains passages from the Psalms, the Hebrew prophets, the New Testament, a few references to New Testament Apocrypha, St. Augustine, Isidore of Seville, and the University of Paris theologian Pierre de Ailly. We'll return to de Ailly in a moment. He's one of the navigation tools on our journey here. At the front of the Book of Prophecies, Columbus attached two letters that he wrote to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, outlining his apocalyptic ideology that colored his understanding of the voyages to what he thought was Asia. He told the Spanish monarchs that he had learned much from his voyages and had also taken the time to collect and study numerous works of cosmography, history, prophecy, and other disciplines. It was his study of these other disciplines that provided him with the knowledge he used to chart a course for the Indies and deliver on the promises that he had made to the Spanish monarchs. Throughout his letter to the Spanish monarchs, Columbus continued to justify his position and his rightness through a connection to biblical prophecy, claiming that his accomplishments fulfilled several of the prophecies in both the Old and New Testaments. In particular, the spreading of the gospel to all the peoples of the earth and to recapture the Holy Temple, the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, both of these things being signs of the impending end. Columbus concluded his letter by laying out a general timeline for what he thought was good math for calculating the arrival of the end of time, charting through various Christian theologians, including Isidore of Seville, St. Augustine, and Pierre de Ailly. He concluded his letter by referencing a few prophecies yet to come, that the one to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem would come from Spain, as told by the Calabrian abbot, Joachim of Fiore in the 13th century, and Pierre de Ailly's identification of Islam as a signal of the arrival of Antichrist. Columbus would write the King and Queen of Spain a second letter in 1503. While it did not appear in his Book of Prophecies, it carried many of the same things. Marooned off of the coast of Jamaica, Columbus wrote some of his recent misfortunes before turning towards the prophetic once again. 
Columbus wrote about his journey to Veragua, what is today the Caribbean coasts of Nicaragua, Puerto Rico, and Panama, and discussed the gold that he found there and how plentiful it was. He claimed, in fact, that the amount of gold he found there was four times the amount of gold that he had found on Hispaniola. He was clearly smitten. But then Columbus wrote something curious. He returned to his biblical knowledge and wrote about the gold that Solomon found during his expeditions into Arabia from the gold fields of Aurea, all chronicled by the Book of Chronicles, the Book of Kings, and by the historian Josephus. Columbus was convinced that these gold fields in Veragua were the same such fields from which Solomon had taken his gold. To Columbus, this was prima facie evidence of the truth of the prophecies that he so fervently believed in. This gold provided proof of Joachim of Fiore's prophecy that a man from Spain would rebuild the temple. This was the gold that would allow that man from Spain to do it. So to recap, Columbus has both blended biblical and extra-biblical apocalyptic prophecy with a bit of biblical geography in order to add meaning to the voyages he undertook. And we're really just scratching the surface a bit here. Columbus's mind was filled with all sorts of interesting bits of theology, philosophy, alchemy, and sacred geography. His whole raison d'etre for his voyages was, essentially, to find a way to fund a final crusade to Jerusalem to defeat Islam once and for all. Based on his knowledge of prophecy, he sincerely believed that the Spanish monarchs would be the ones to accomplish this final victory. In other words, Columbus saw Ferdinand and Isabella at the end of the final earthly kingdom that would usher in the end of days as foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They were, in Columbus's mind at least, the last world emperors. Now, I imagine that a lot of this seems fantastic and so far beyond the realm of standard knowledge about Columbus and about medieval thinking about the world in general. But I want to briefly make the case that Columbus's understanding about prophecy and geography were not too far outside the norm for many late medieval Europeans. As we've talked about already, Columbus had more than a passing familiarity with a large body of medieval knowledge. He had taken particular interest in the University of Paris theologian Pierre d'Ailly, who, among other things, had also written several works on geography, alchemy, and astrology. I want to focus mostly on the geography here, since that's going to be the most helpful for us. But there's some really interesting work done on the alchemy and astrology side of things, and Columbus thought so too. Columbus's letters are full of interesting insights and references to medieval astrology. He was especially fascinated with Saturn. I'd love to figure out why at some point. Columbus and indeed the general medieval knowledge of the Earth's geography, comes from an intellectual and theological tradition as well as a genre of late medieval travel writing. We've focused a lot on the theological tradition, so I'd like to focus on the travel writing portion for just a bit. Starting in the 13th century, Western Europeans began to make semi-regular journeys from the confines of Latin Christendom to Asia, 
We're probably all familiar with Marco Polo, whose travel accounts have captured the imaginations of many since they came out on the scene. The Polos, of course, were not the only ones to take these long journeys. Many friars from both the Dominican and Franciscan orders traversed across Asia, meeting with the Mongol Khans and attempting to spread the gospel into new lands, as did other merchants like the Polos. The upshot of this is that a new genre of medieval literature kicks off in the wake of these journeys, what scholars have called the Marvels of the East. Part and parcel of these descriptions of the East was an attempt to locate certain biblical markers, as we saw earlier with Columbus attempting to explain that he had discovered the gold mines of Solomon. Some of this tradition leaked into the late medieval geographies written by Latin Christians like Pierre de Ailly. In his treatise, for example, de Ailly puts significant emphasis on India, even going as far as displacing Jerusalem and the Garden of Eden in terms of importance. As a result, the East became a place where some medieval Christians could imagine a landscape full of not only marvelous people, but also markers that could give some clue as to the ultimate design of God's plan for the world. After all, the East must be the locus of the Garden of Eden, the terrestrial paradise, and other lost biblical places. But we have to ask, what does the Garden of Eden and these lost places of sacred geography have to do with the end of the world? And our answer is twofold. First, finding the terrestrial paradise was one of the many signs of the coming end. And indeed, during the Central and Late Middle Ages, crusaders and travelers alike searched for the garden's location, especially in Central Asia. Of course, nobody ever found the garden during this time, so it stood to reason that it still existed out there somewhere. And indeed, many of the mapmakers of the time place the garden somewhere on their maps. A second way that the location of the Garden of Eden was apocalyptic lies in the fact that locating it revealed a tangible proof of God's plan. Here, like the Holy Sepulchre, Golgotha, and other such holy sites, was a clear demonstrative symbol of the Christian faith. And that's exactly what Apocalypse is, after all. It's an unveiling of previously secret knowledge. Truthfully, that makes every act of discovery, at least in this narrow medieval sense, apocalyptic. Columbus, on his third voyage, believed that he was on the verge of finding the terrestrial paradise. He had sailed through the greater Antilles, the island of Trinidad, and eventually wound up in the mouth of the Orinoco River. The Admiral was taken in by the amount of fresh water pouring into the Atlantic from the Orinoco and concluded that this was a sign that the earthly paradise must be at the other end of the river. Otherwise, there could be no other explanation for the quantity of fresh water that he saw before him. Columbus believed that the garden was still unapproachable, though his imagination does not comport with our own. Columbus believed that because of the way the wind blew and the water flowed, that he had found evidence of a fourth continent of sorts, on which the mountain of Purgatory and the Garden of Eden rested. Now, I want to be really clear here, and 
say that I'm not claiming that he fully understood that he had found the continents of North and South America. On the contrary, he believed that this fourth continent was only large enough to hold the mountain of purgatory itself, and he still believed that he was somewhere in the quote-unquote East. Christopher Columbus was not alone in his apocalyptic imagining of the New World. Indeed, many members of the Franciscan Order imagined North and South America, as well as its inhabitants, as major players in the drama of the end of the world. But that story, dear listeners, will have to come in another episode. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to Christopher Columbus and his Book of Prophecies. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>